Good morning, everyone. It's great to be here with you. I'm very thankful and excited for this opportunity to open up God's Word with you this morning. We've also got a handful of RUF students here with us this morning, back there in the back. That's awesome. And yeah, the Vosikis have been gracious enough to provide a lunch afterwards, so we're really excited about that. But these are some pretty cool kids, so take a moment to say hey to them after the worship service. Uh, It really has been such a joy to get to work with Amy Hudson this year, investing in the lives of college students and witnessing God powerfully working in their lives. It's been incredible. And Anna and I and our kids are absolutely loving this new season of ministry. The girls in particular get so excited when big friends are coming over for any event at the house. So they're super pumped. But I just wanted to begin by saying thank you so much for your prayers and support. With almost a year of ministry with RUF under my belt now, I'm more thankful than ever for families, individuals, and churches who are praying for us, giving generously to make RUF a UAB possible. So thank you. And if you'd like to hear more, talk about how you can partner with us, um, please reach out to me. I would love to hang out, grab some coffee or lunch, and just talk about how God's using RUF on UAB's campus. But doing RUF, you know, I thought it'd be good for us to take a look at Paul's encounter with the intellectual leaders of Athens in the second half of Acts 17. Because doing ministry on a secular university campus, it has me thinking a lot these days about cultural engagement and evangelism. And I think there's a wealth of wisdom that's available to us here in this passage when it comes to navigating relationships for the sake of seeing lost people come to find joy and purpose and life in Jesus, not in the idols that our culture exalts and celebrates. So I hope that looking at this passage will help us as we all seek to live faithfully in the culture in which God has placed us. So if you have your Bibles or you want to follow along in the worship folder, this is Acts 17, verses 16 through 34. It says, Now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth. 
having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, believed, among whom also were Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. This is the word of the Lord. So as we walk through this passage together, I just want to highlight three things that I think we see here. Those three things are, number one, what we're getting into when it comes to the task of evangelism. Number two, why we should do this. And thirdly, how we should do this. So what we're getting into, why we should do this, and how we should do this. So first of all, I think we see in this passage what we're getting ourselves into when we think about evangelism. And knowing what we're getting into is actually incredibly helpful. It sets our expectations where they need to be. We all know what it's like to have our expectations disappointed. Maybe we've had friends who are talking up a new movie or a TV show. We go check it out only to be disappointed that we don't think it's as great as our friend made it sound. This one's kind of funny from personal example. But in this new season of ministry with RUF... Anna and I have realized that our expectations for Friday mornings are quite a big deal. I say it's funny, just like any marital conflict. Afterwards, it's funny. It's not funny while you're in it. (laughs) But Thursdays are large group nights for me, so Thursdays are longer than other days. And we've learned that we really need to talk about Friday mornings, or there's a good chance we'll end up frustrated with each other. So even after a long day... I'm usually thinking, hey, that wasn't too bad. I'll still get up, get an early start tomorrow so I can get home kind of mid-afternoon on Friday and start the weekend. But the trouble comes in when Anna has a very different expectation for Friday. She's thinking, all right, Brad had a long day. I'm exhausted from parenting three littles. Maybe he'll take it a little slower tomorrow morning and let me sleep in a little bit, watch the kids. So needless to say, our different expectations for Friday morning have led to a couple conflicts this year. (laughs) So again, knowing our expectations, knowing what to expect can be incredibly helpful. I think it can prevent us from experiencing significant disappointment or frustration. And it's helpful to know what we're getting into when it comes to evangelism so that we're not disoriented and discouraged. And I think this passage helps us set some healthy expectations for this important task. So look at how this episode in Paul's life ends in verses 32 through 34. It says, Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, We will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed. Rico Tice, he has this really great little book called Honest Evangelism. And he says, 
if we are to live gospel-sharing, grace-spreading lives, and we can expect to bump into both hostility and hunger in those that we encounter. And we see those two realities here. Those are the two realities we can be sure that we're going to face. Hostility and hunger. Some will mock, but others will want to hear more. And hostility is what we all fear we're going to bump into as we consider engaging in gospel conversations with friends and family members. We're afraid that they're going to be antagonistic and that we won't know what to say. That it's going to be awkward. I think we just need to know this is something we're to expect. It's going to happen. And it's okay. Paul experienced it in Athens and we will experience it in our lives too if we're seeking to live courageously for the sake of seeing the lost come to faith in Jesus. So I think the reality of hostility, knowing that that's out there, should sober us and make us take this task incredibly seriously. But the reality of hunger, also knowing that that's out there, should encourage us and excite us when we think about sharing Jesus with the non-Christians around us. Again, I think our, having our expectations put in the right place is something that we need. It gives us a stability that we wouldn't otherwise possess if we didn't step into this with realistic expectations. And another thing we've got to be prepared for is being seen as odd in the eyes of the world. Look at how the citizens of Athens respond to Paul in verses 19 and 20. And they took him, brought him to the Areopagus. That's just a council of intellectual leaders in Athens saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting. For you bring some strange things to our ears. So Paul and his message sounded very strange to the people of Athens. I think this helps prepare us to be seen as strange in the eyes of the world. Kevin DeYoung, he adapted this statement from David Wells, but he says this, Worldliness is whatever makes sin look normal and righteousness look strange. Faithfulness to God is its going to look odd in the eyes of the world. It's going to look like something that doesn't quite make sense. But this is something that Jesus prepares us for. For example, by inspiring Peter to tell us beforehand. We just finished walking through 1 Peter. And in 1 Peter 4, verses 3 and 4, it says, For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. Living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, Drinking parties and lawless idolatry. And verse 4 says, With respect to this, they are surprised. Unbelievers are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery. And they malign you or slander you. So the unbelieving world is going to be surprised. They don't quite get it. And we didn't either before we came to know Jesus. But a life of faithful obedience to Jesus arising from a heart that loves and treasures him isn't going to make sense to the world. It looks strange. But I think we're called to embrace this uncomfortable truth, praying and trusting that God will use his powerful gospel to change people's hearts and show them that underneath the strangeness of living for Jesus lies a magnificent and life-changing beauty that we all hunger to enjoy. So we can expect to experience hostility, to be seen as strange in the eyes of the world, but may we be encouraged and motivated to share Jesus with others, knowing that God has also put a hunger in their hearts, in all of his image bearers, for love and purpose, for significance and security, 
And we're meant to find those things in Jesus. The problem is we look elsewhere to try to find those things. But we want to point people to Jesus. The second thing, why we should do this, I think we also glean from this text a little bit about why we should be involved in this important work of evangelism. Look at how this scene begins in verse 16. It says, Now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, he's waiting for Timothy and Silas, some ministry buddies, it says his spirit was provoked with him, within him, as he saw that the city was full of idols. Paul was provoked, he was troubled because of the tight grip that idolatry had on the hearts of these people. They were looking to other things for what they were meant to find in the Lord. They had turned to a plethora of God replacements that they were seeking to squeeze significance and love and joy out of. And Paul was deeply distressed to see these people picking and choosing whatever they wanted to believe and however they wanted to live. And that they were resistant to submit to what God had revealed to them of himself. And sin, disregarding and disobeying God, is our biggest problem in life. And Paul knew that and longed for these people to understand that too and to find in Jesus the solution to that problem. As he says in verses 30 and 31, he knew that if they didn't embrace salvation in Christ, then they would experience what we all deserve to experience because of our sin. But here's how he says it. Verses 30 and 31, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. So the reality of judgment, that we will all stand before God to give an account for our lives, was a massively important thing in Paul's mind because of its certainty and its inescapability. This is the great reality at the end of life and at the end of history that we must be ready for. And our only hope is to be found clothed in the perfect obedience of Jesus. If we are found in our sin without Christ, we will experience the full penalty for sin that we deserve. Being separated from God and all of his goodness in hell for all eternity. This is the horrible news that the good news of the gospel addresses. And this bad news was what so animated Paul and his love for the lost. And his sharing of the gospel with them. So for us, I know evangelism is scary for all of us. Certainly is for me, being on a college campus, I wrestle with how to do these things. But for us, I think one of the simplest yet most profound ways we can begin growing in evangelism is by regularly praying that God would give us a heart that is burdened for the lost in general. And specifically for the lost people God's put in our lives around us. I think God is delighted when we come before him, are honest about the lack of desire that we feel when it comes to evangelism, and ask him to change that in our hearts and in our life together as a community. Like Paul, we want to be looking for and taking advantage of opportunities to develop friendships with non-Christians. In verse 17, it says that Paul was out there in the marketplace day by day, bumping into all sorts of different people and befriending them. So I just want to encourage you to look for those opportunities that the Lord has laid before you to grow in friendship with non-believers and trust that God has put them in your life on purpose. And another really important thing I think we can be doing to stoke the fires of love for the lost in our own hearts. 
And I think this is underneath Paul's troubled spirit as he looks around at the idols filling the city of Athens. It's to seek to be daily astonished by the good news of what Jesus has done for us. Astonishment will lead to movement. Vertical astonishment at what God has done to rescue us from our sins in Christ will empower us in horizontal movement toward those who desperately need Jesus and haven't come to him yet. Another way to say it is that we must know the gospel well and be enjoying it ourselves if we're going to share it with others. And the best way to get to know it is by discovering anew its beauty and goodness every day. So reminding ourselves that we are lost and without hope in Christ, apart from Christ, that we deserve to be cast out of God's presence forever, and yet that we have been brought near because Jesus took our place, enduring the full weight of God's wrath so that we would never have to. I think reminding ourselves of those incredible realities and of God's unfailing love for us has the power to create and sustain a deep passion for the lost. If we are being continually reminded both of our sinfulness and of Jesus' goodness, and if we remember that we'd still be lost if it hadn't been for God working saving faith into our hearts through the new birth, then we'll be more passionate to see others safe from their sins just as we have been. So sharing Jesus and spreading His grace in the world ought to be near and dear to our hearts because it's at the very center of God's heart for the world. And lastly, how we should do this. That's the big question for all of us. How do we actually do this? I don't have all the answers, but I think we see some really helpful things in this passage. I think Paul gives us a compelling picture of how to engage with unbelieving, the unbelieving world around us. But first, just notice how it connects with things in their worldview and in an effort to then point them to the gospel. So in verses 22 and 23, he points out that they're very religious. We are all worshipers by nature. We will worship something. And he uses this altar that he sees in the city with this inscription to an unknown God as a way to connect with them and use it as a launching pad for sharing more about the gospel. And in verse 28, he quotes a couple of poets of the day that the Athenians would have respected. And he uses these statements to connect with them and with the truths of the gospel. And before challenging them, which he certainly does that as well, he first looks for ways to connect with them in order to build up some relational capital, giving him an opportunity to share more. Something I heard in seminary that stuck with me ever since is that relationships are like bridges. Bridges that are sturdy and well-built can hold up under some heavy cargo, cargo being sent across them. But if a bridge is wobbly, if it's unstable, if it hasn't been well-built, then sending a heavy load across it has the potential to cause it to collapse. I think relationships work in similar ways. If we haven't taken time to connect with people and to build a sturdy relationship with them first, then we won't have the relational capital to share some of those heavier, weightier truths of the gospel. If we do share them, we run the risk of potentially ruining a relationship. Now, of course, with every good relationship, there's always the risk that bringing up the eternally important matters of the gospel could throw a wrench into things. That's always a liability in evangelism. So we don't want to continually be putting off gospel conversations because we're not sure if the relationship's developed enough yet. But we don't want to rush it either. We can trust that God is sovereign and we can take a long-term approach, taking our time to grow in friendship with people first and then 
asking God for wisdom to know when and how to share the gospel over time in that relationship. We can trust God and move forward, seeking to gradually move into deeper territory with them in our conversations over time. So what we learn from Paul from his time in Athens is that he embraced this wise balance between connecting with the people of Athens, with their worldview, and challenging them where they needed to be challenged. They were both there, connecting and challenging. And after making a connection with their way of thinking, their way of processing the world by quoting from a couple respected intellectuals that they held in high esteem, he then moves on in verses 29 through 31 to issue the challenge of the gospel which is to acknowledge that judgment is real and that we are called to repent, to turn away from our sins and trust in Jesus alone to be made right with God. This is the offense of the gospel, the rough edges that we dare not sand away or we risk distorting the the gospel. But the good news of the gospel confronts the bad news of our sinfulness. It tells us that something amazing has been done to address our sin problem And that we must acknowledge our great neediness and our poverty of spirit. That we must reach out to embrace and lay hold of the salvation offered to us in Christ. And that's hard for people to hear who think that they're pretty good. Many people out in our culture think that. Many of us have thought that before we came to know Jesus and wrestled with these truths. The gospel confronts us with that hard truth that we are dead in sin. We are totally lost and without hope. Unless the Lord gives us a new heart to trust in Jesus. And now take a look at verse 21 with me. So this verse communicates something about the culture of Athens that overlaps with our own. It says, Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who live there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. You see, the culture of Athens was very open-minded. They were open to new ideas and new information, which is a good thing, but also something that can be taken too far. And G.K. Chesterton, I think he nailed this on the head when he said this, Merely having an open mind is nothing. The object of opening the mind as of opening the mouth is to shut it again on something solid. And then he ended by saying, Do not be so open-minded that your brains fall out. But I think that's really good. The purpose of an open mind, like an open mouth, is to find something good and substantial to bite down on. So the challenge for us as the church is to show the world that we have found the thing, or better, the person, who is worth clamping down on. We have to seek to do this not in a way that's arrogant or holier than thou, but in a way that's humble and shows the world how eager we are for them to find their deepest satisfaction in Jesus, just as we have. We were made for relationship with the Lord. And as good old Augustine said, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in Him. Here's a couple final just practical nuggets of wisdom that I found in my reading through the years when it comes to evangelism that don't specifically arise out of this text, but I think for us are really helpful to know. The first thing is just to remember that success in evangelism is not in the saving, it's in the sharing. We can't change anyone's heart. God does that, but he does call us to share the gospel with others, trusting that he will use his beautiful, life-changing gospel to save the lost. And secondly, just ask lots of questions as you're getting to know people. 
You know, in his ministry, we see that Jesus was the master of asking good, heart-probing questions. It's hard to overstate the importance and the power of good questions. So be curious about people, about their stories, their joys, their hurts, their interests. Use those things to connect with them. Be genuinely interested in them and ask lots of questions to build that relationship, making it nice and sturdy. And lastly, remember that a person's greatest need is not a moral makeover driven by self-improvement. It's Jesus. And sometimes I think we feel like we've got to clean somebody up a little bit or convince them that what they're doing is wrong when what they need most is to behold the beauty and the goodness and the uniqueness of Jesus. Let him do the convicting as they encounter him. Show them Jesus over and over again and trust that moral change will come as a result of encountering him. God doesn't require that we clean ourselves up first before we come to him. That comes after we've been brought back into a restored relationship with him and begin doing life with him. But at the end of the day, we want people to see the goodness and the truth and the beauty of the gospel so that they can share in its glorious riches with us. And to do this, we must be sharing Jesus. This is how God makes his grace spread to more and more people throughout history. When those who are already his treasure Christ so much that they're zealous to talk to others about him. Even with all the fears that are never going to go away, that we're always going to have. So may God give us the grace that we need to do this and to learn to do it well. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for your goodness and your grace. Lord, thank you for the gospel that has so deeply transformed our lives and our hearts. Lord, may we push through the fears that we experience when it comes to evangelism and talking to our friends and family members about the gospel. Lord, it is hard. There are a lot of fears that are out there that fill our hearts and paralyze us. And that happens to every single one of us. But Lord, I pray that you would, by your spirit, give us courage, give us wisdom to know how to share things with those around us. But Lord, at the end of the day, may our hope be in you. You are the one who saves sinners, who works in their hearts, who causes them to trust in Jesus as they hear your gospel and wrestle with the claims of Jesus. So we just pray, Lord, that you would help us be courageous, help us trust you. And we pray that you would blow us away with what you do as we seek to do this, as you work in the lives of the people around us. May it be such a joy for us to see. And now be with us, Lord, as we continue to worship you, to fix our eyes on you, to remember this life-changing news of the gospel that you've given to us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.